And um, before we get started, um, wrapping up the end of um, the current anime season. So I'm going to talk a little bit about a couple of things I've been watching or that we've been watching. Have you been watching any current stuff lately? Uh, this is back to school time for a sense. So we, our uh, amount of time we've been able to watch is down, but I've been, uh, I'm keeping up to date with uh, Jujutsu Kaisen. Um, we watched the Netflix live-action One Piece adaptation, although that doesn't strictly count. Yeah. It is anime adjacent. <laughs> uh, that's fair. I mean, the uh, the creator of the manga was involved, so that's something. Yeah. I mean, it, it was way better than the Netflix Death Note adaptation. <laughs> which, or, I mean, I personally very much enjoyed the original Japanese live-action Death Note adaptations. I love them. Uh, I felt that they were the way to do a live, ap- live action adaptation of take the source material, keep what you need, and make the changes you need to in order to tell a satisfying story in this new medium. I'm, I'm glad that more people are going to be introduced to One Piece through the Netflix adaptation. Um, I actually was only tangentially familiar with One Piece because it's hard not to be at least tangentially familiar. Um but this was my first time really diving into any of it. Um, so I really enjoyed the show. I have to admit that One Piece as a work um, contains so many cartoony elements that it probably makes more sense as an anime than as a live action adaptation. Um, but I appreciated being able to consume part of the story without watching hundreds of episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that was explaining to Luke, uh, our son, uh, we've actually started watching the anime together. We're three episodes in. And I was explaining, I was like, yeah, Luke, if we watch three episodes every day, we'll almost have caught up in a year. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I definitely get the sense, like, when I saw this that this was getting made, I was interested in the level of production value, but I did definitely get the sense of, like, the main character's power is basically squash and stretch, which is one of yes. the central uh, conceits of animation as a medium. Exactly. Um, and so I definitely get like the, the understood like of the various works that adapted from anime, anime and manga to live action. Why most people, why people were more confused that they went with this one. Cause um the character designs are definitely more suitable for animation than live action. Men should be manly. Women should be vavoom. Quoting the creator. Quoting the creator. <laughs> Which explains so much about all of his character choices. Um, but I, I did enjoy it. I think um, if I had been lucky enough to be a makeup artist or even a like set designer on that show i would have had so much fun like (laughs) good times there yeah um i was amused that um um on her official twitter account um jamie lee curtis who was a fan of one piece um (laughs) has said that hey once we settle the once the strike is dealt with um, there's this character later on that I want to play in the, in your, in your Netflix, um, 
One Piece. That would be very cool. Oh, God. She'd be so good in so many roles. Like, she posted a picture of the character, and I'm I'm not familiar enough with One Piece to remember exactly what the character's name is, but in any case. She was so great in Everything Everywhere All at Once, though. Oh my god, <laughs> yes! <laughs> oh, oh. Dr. Correa? Yes, Dr. Correa. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah, oh, Jamie Lee Harris would be amazing. Although she doesn't quite look 140. <laughs> which the doctor is but I mean good, a good makeup job yeah no she 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 would nail that role like yep yeah. uh so I'll I'll try, try to find that tweet and put a link to that in the show notes um in any case um as far as stuff I've been watching I did finally finish watching um or Battler Dunbean um as this as the time this episode will go out the day before, I'll should have a, a written review up on the blog uh, if you want to read that. Um, but short version is very good show. Um, I I enjoyed it a lot. I do definitely get the sense coming away from this of like Tomino has tried and multiple points to make give Dunbean the same longevity of Gundam, his other major franchise that he created. Um, and to put it mildly, there was about as much room for extensive sequels and spinoffs for Aura Battler Dunbean as there is room for extensive sequels and spinoffs to Space Runaway Edeon. Uh, Space Exodus Edeon? <laughs> a, a timely reference. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, in fact, that's actually a pretty good place to segue into, uh, this week's show or this week this month's show i should say um, follow up in the form of an earlier ser- watching an earlier series to uh keep your hands off azokin well azokin kind of is about the general principles of animation and that sort of thing um shirobako is basically how the sausage gets made. And by the sausage, I mean the show you watch on television week to week or binge watch um, after it all finishes coming out or when you have a slow season and it's and you go and grab something that's been sitting in your to-watch list for months and months and months. Um, it's somewhat romanticized in the sense of like it. some of the, the rough edges are... Um, sanded down but it, i think it does a pretty good job of still maintaining some of the like the ways in which the working in anime as a profession can be both rewarding and also incredibly toxic mm-hmm. Isaacan was about um an amateur production and then shirabako kind of takes that to the next level which is what happens when you go from your high school anime club to actually working in the industry and we get this, pers- this get this through the perspective of basically a group of um, five friends who were in a high school anime club, anime production club, not in the sense of like an American watching anime and talking about it club. Uh, Ayumi Amori, who is um, introduced, is a uh, production assistant and later production manager 
at a studio called um, Musashino Animation. Oh, you have then her um, friend Emma Yas Yasuhara, who is a animator, uh, also at Musani. We have uh, Shizuka Sakaki, who is a aspiring actress, voice actress. Um, Misa uh, Todo, who is a 3D art uh, CG artist and animation artist. And then Midori Amai, who is an inspiring writer and also ends up getting brought on as a researcher over the course of the series. And we kind of, so we start out, two of them are already in the industry. Well, three of them is, one of them is peripheral to the industry. Uh, one is trying to break in and one is training in order to break in, to get into the business. And by the time of the end, all of them to a various degree have gotten into the business. So, um, what were your thoughts, um, general on, uh, Shirabako? I, I, I really enjoyed it. it. It did take me a bit to get into it because it isn't one of the shows that has like, a direct narrative uh, through line because it's about show production. So that's what's compelling, you know, from one episode to another is making of the, of a series, uh, two, two different series over the course of the show. Uh, it took me a bit to get into it, but I was, I was hooked by the end. <laughs> um, I found like, I loved all of the references and, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of references to various animation productions or series or just individual creators in every episode. <laughs> it's uh, it, it was very enjoyable. Uh, I liked it. Uh, uh, it, it. It does definitely reminds me of some people I know in various production capacities. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that guy. I think the show definitely succeeds at um, being entertaining, but more importantly for me, it succeeds at showing the difference between having passion for a creative endeavor and then actually working in the industry associated with that creative passion. There are <laughs> lots and lots of, of, of pitfalls and things that people don't think about. Um, and at the end of the day, art is about communication. And if you get into an industry that is selling artistic product like animation, your ability to communicate is really paramount. Um, and that becomes, you know, increasingly clear to our protagonists as the series goes on. It goes into a little bit of how important it is to network and to know people. And then I really appreciated um, in the second season, they introduced a character who was kind of a foil to Aoi, who was a fellow production coordinator, but who has been completely burned out by the system and is kind of a jerk who is just skating by as a result. Um, and that is a very real thing that happens. And I appreciate them being willing to show that. <laughs> yep. Um, one of the things that I liked about this show, what grabbed me originally, um, as I mentioned back in the Ezukin episode, you know, like one of the things I saw, or one of my formative children's books when I was growing up, was um, from a leaky how a book is made, which goes through the whole process of making a children's book. 
Um, and not just in the sense of like doing the art and that sort of thing, but everything from doing layout proofs and uh, designing the cover, um, selecting paper, color selection, and that sort of thing. Uh, showing all the work and all the people involved with every step of the process. And when I was looking at this in Shirobako and contrasting this with some, um, say, American films and television shows about movies and movie making, for example, oftentimes they can get a little, not, not a little, one of the frequent criticisms of that whole kind of subgenre of the movies about movie making is how self-indulgent they can become. Um, operating from the perspective of like the, uh, the target audience for this movie is people who make movies or are involved in movies, and so they don't necessarily need to explain anything. Um, but one of the things with Shirobako, particularly what's coming out, is it because it showcases so many aspects of the process and the people involved with them to the point of, of like when you haven't seen somebody's name for a while, show their name and show what their job title is, and you'll spend some time with them to show what they do for their job, that we get a sense of the amount of work and all the different people involved in the process. And to make a comparison, it'd be like if we had a mini series or a television series about making movies where you spent time with like the sound people and the key grip and all this sort of stuff. And you come and you go into the series, not knowing what a key grip does. And you come out from it knowing what a key grip does, what a Foley artist does and how they do their job and why their job is important. Um, and I think one of the things I observed that I was paying attention to anime discourse before and after Shirobako is we started is maybe just me noticing this, but after Shirobako, you started seeing people paying more attention to like, not just like, Oh, this show, this show was directed by Hideaki Anno. This had a, uh, Ichiro Itano as a key animator. Um, this has music by Yoko Kano. Um, but also, Oh, these key animators worked on this show, worked on this show, and they worked on these other shows. Um, and so, paying attention to the individual animators involved, not just thinking blanket wise as a studio thing. Certainly, there people do go, oh, "Hey, a studio trigger show, that's great," but that because studio trigger and certain directors like Amishi have house styles. But we're now also paying attention to who the animators who are working on this are, and. So it, I appreciate that the discourse, so to speak, post Shirobako has started paying more weight and more attention to a wider array of people who work on um, these projects. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Shirobako snuck a little Foley in there, which I really appreciate. Oh, yeah. Always love seeing Foley artists at work. Um, and they, they, were, they were careful to show that even though any given studio has their full-time in-house animators, there's, they're often, if not almost always, making use of freelancers and studios who specifically focus on essentially contracting out you know, different scenes of productions. So that was also important to see. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about media, be it TV shows or movies in any country, is that there's usually singular vision behind it. And sometimes that's true, but even when it is, there is such a vast army of people working behind the scenes contributing. It, it really is kind of amazing how 
so many people with so many different specialties come together to create a singular piece of entertainment. Yeah. Um, one of the things I particularly liked about this as well also is um, mentorship plays a major part of the series as well in terms of the character stuff because we're um, we get a lot of cameo appearances. We got to mention this briefly earlier of like serial numbers filed off versions of real life animators and <laughs> animation directors and writers and that sort of thing. Um, we have a character here who is a uh, serial numbers filed off version of Ichiro Itano, and th they are overt enough that hey, if you in case you didn't get the reference, um, we're going to show an Itano circus, um, his his signature missile shot. Um, we're going to have um, serial numbers filed off um, um, Hideaki Anno, and we're going to have a yeah. reference to uh, his famous uh, scene, that, like his first animation direction scene shot that he did from um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Again, in case you in case you didn't realize what they we're talking about here, who this is supposed to be. But it gets so much more than that. I had Great. to go look up to see if he voiced himself. We, we, we did. <laughs> because he voices the main character in Miyazaki's uh, The Wind Rises. So yeah. I know he has done voice work. But I think that was kind of a one-off thing as a favor to Miyazaki's, though. <laughs> he did not voice himself in the show. Because yeah, Miyazaki was like, yeah, we, we want like an auto type. Like, do you want us to ask Anna? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do this time. <laughs> Um, because those two are good friends, and uh, and uh, Miyazaki had a cameo in uh, Shin Godzilla. Yeah. Um. Also, like, um, like with as far as the Ano um doing the um animation cut thing, like Ano has like putting aside his direction stuff, he has like done an animated like he does keep his his finger in Toei every now and then, um. I remember, in addition, so he animated the opening credit sequence for um, Star Blazers 2199. Um, and he also did the opening credits for um, the Blue Submarine number six um, anime miniseries. No, 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 not, not Blue Submarine number six. Um, uh, Submarine 707R, which is. Okay. Which I was like, which is, some signals like mid aughts. Uh, well, well, uh, Submarine Seven Hundred Seven R is also mid aughts, and it's from a and it's based on a manga from the same person who created Blue Sub Six, which is why I got them mixed up. Um, but yeah, um, Otto, like again, like he just keep his toe and just animate something. So it's like I could see honestly, like somebody going, oh, "Hey, could I'm." St <laughs> <laughs> Like, there's an animator. <laughs> uh, like, there's an animator. I think Anna would find this fun. Uh, he's in between projects at the moment, I think. <laughs> I, actually, I really appreciated that whole sequence where Aoi was like, okay, I'll go ask him. Not realizing that... Who? This is not something that an ordinary juvenile production coordinator would do. And then she leaves and the industry veterans behind her are like, I think she's actually going to do it. <laughs> we, are you, you should call, like, I'm going to call him and let him know she's coming. <laughs> Does it have to be a horse? Uh, could it be a fighter jet? Okay, that was amazing. Yeah. Why? <laughs> so I can gun them down. 
<laughs> I I loved the whole the whole story where she goes to the veteran animator at her company and realizes, presumably after she's been working with him for almost a year, realizes that he worked on her favorite show as a kid. Uh, <laughs> That, that was great. That the president of her company did? Yeah. Like, the president takes her down to, like, an old, basically, a building that the company owns because they bought the assets from from the old company, and it's just there, so it's full of old stuff. And she finds, like, cells from her favorite show. Uh, and if I was like, really yes, yeah, shout out to cell painting. That was a that was a tedious process. <laughs> like, it's like, what, what, why didn't you just ask him to take one of the cells home? No one's using them. And like, that is actually an uh, interesting thing. Like, cells oftentimes do get kind of tossed out. Yeah. And so one of the like, there's a bit in the mockumentary sequences from. Um, uh, uh, crap. Um, just the name of this just fell on my head. Um, Otaku no video. Um, where they're talking about cell theft, and basically with, with the, the conversation of, hey, people are taking these without permission, but also once we're done with them, we never need them again. Um, also, like the interesting thing with um this as well is so the director, the the, the studio head is based on Masao Moriyama, um, previous founder of Madhouse, current co-founder of MAPPA, and I think he started the third studio since then. Um, and um, Moriyama was in the same... seems like the best boss ever. <laughs> yep. And Moriyama was in the same position that we see in the flashback sequence at Mushi Productions, which I believe also is the um, company that made the show that Andy's Chucky is based on. Um, so, I mean, admittedly, like, I'm not going to say that everybody in the history of animation passed through the doors of um, Mushi Productions. Uh, Sao Takahata and Miyazaki particularly never did. Um, and after um, uh, Tezuka, Osamu Tezuka passed away, famously... Um, Miyazaki wrote a absolutely scathing um, poison pin memorial of Tezuka and basically how Tezuka is the worst thing that ever happened to animation and no one should ever emulate him ever. Um, yeah, so that the oh. somewhat amusing. Miyazaki there. has strong opinions. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> For real. The, the man will not tone himself down for anything. What what did he say about his son's movie? You shouldn't make something that has no feeling or something like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's, 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 he won't he won't restrict his words, but you know, respect. Um, <laughs> um yeah. But it's actually worth talking about for a second in the context of the cell theft that you mentioned. Um, that the history of animation, especially in the earliest parts, are a little murky. 
and especially when it comes to Eastern animation, like Russian animation in particular, and even anime over in Japan. Like most people date anime to Tezuka, which is which is fine, but animation as a whole, with like the kind of synergy that we were seeing when we saw that Nutcracker movie, um, there's they like recently found a little bit of animation in Japan that they think might be the earliest that they found, which was really interesting. Um, but they, when, when these things were being created, they didn't give too much thought to history, to preserving them, obviously, which is why you get this kind of aforementioned warehouse of old animation art. I have a lot of beef with the Walt Disney Corporation because they are a mega corporation and no corporation is good, right? Because they're profit focused. But one thing that they've done right, I think, is to create kind of a uh, an archive of all of the work that has been produced there. If you follow Disney on TikTok, actually, they have an archivist who walks through the vaults, essentially, and pulls out pieces of animation from different productions, pulls out background paintings from different productions. And all of the Disney artists, if you look into them, are actually really well attested. You can still get um, published books written by the Nine Old Men, Disney's veteran animators. But you don't really get that kind of preserved archival experience of these creative works um, in Russia or Japan, which is a huge shame. Um, so if you are a student of animation, and I particularly went to school for illustration, not animation, but a lot of friends in the animation department, um, you end up kind of bemoaning the fact that these early anime productions in particular... Um, a lot of that work was not saved. It's kind of like the lost tapes of Doctor Who, you know? It's like, we would love to have these things, but uh, their priority at the time was not archival. Cells are expensive. We can just take the paint off. Um, so I'm reading a book actually at the moment called Anime A History. The second edition of it recently came out. I will put a link to where to get the book in the show notes. Uh, I've gotten to actually the 60s at this point. So I've gotten through um, the Taisho period and sort of the dawn of Japanese animation on through the wartime period. And like one of the things that they're running into is, like it's important to mention, as far as wartime goes for Japan, it doesn't, it's, we think of World War II as 1939 through 1945. Um in Japan, it is remembered as a 15 years war. It ends yeah. in 1945, but goes back to 1930, including the invasions uh, uh, of China and that sort of thing. And so when it comes to the animation business, at that point, you, they were already running into wartime rationing and scarcity. Yes. And um, animation cells are made out of cellulose which is also a ingredient in nitrocellulose, AKA gun cotton, the thing you need to make ammunition. Um, and the, um, when the military has much more heavy control in terms of what you make 
in terms of art and propaganda and that sort of thing and just industrial in general, they're going to prioritize the guns over the propaganda to certain points, particularly like, and so that led to limited access to cells and needing to recycle cells for basically as much as you can and as long as you can. Uh, and which aggravates the amount of animation that was like the scarcity of animation from this period of time. Yeah. I'm kind of uh, sorry. I brought up Disney because the only reason they were able to save stuff is because they weren't dealing with all of this wartime stuff and they did do propaganda cartoons, obviously. Let, let, let's just put that out there. And there, um, Donald Duck has a legitimate commission in the United States Navy. The reason he dresses like a sailor is because he is a U.S. seaman. So it's like they were getting funding. Well, animation companies in Japan were having fun and taking it. Yeah. They did eventually get animation production uh, funding for wartime propaganda and training films, uh, basically mainly because some of, Dis uh, uh, some of Disney's wartime propaganda and training films um, got managed to make it over to Japan and said, oh, you could use animation as a very productive way to train people in construction and operating heavy machinery and all this other stuff. So I'll, I guess we're going to fund the animation again, but you're still going to have to heavily recycle those cells. Um, but in any case, um, so like the show is kind of split into two chunks. Uh, and uh, the first core, it's the general like workflow of in making an animated series. And then in the second chunk, we get into the production committee and the back end side of things in terms of when you're making an adapted show based off another work dealing with the, um, author or the author's representation who may or may not be actually communicating with the author. Um, and God, uh, I just wanted to strangle him. Funny story. <laughs> Funny story. You should die in a fire. <laughs> wow. I, uh, as a person who has worked in offices, I, I was, I was incandescent with rage. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, why is it? Why is there a problem? Why are we not hearing the other side of that? Well, I didn't think it was a big deal. You you created this situation. You let it get worse. It is now at the point where we are at complete ruin because you didn't think it was a big deal. So happy they did that whole sequence with the director storming the publishing company building and just Take it out, people, on his way to talk to the author. Street Fighter 2. Because all of the director's moves were reuse moves, recycled. Yep. With, with the addition of his um, belly. Yeah. yeah. And, and using, his, using the director's lunch. And they really buried the joke because when one of the guys he went through shows up in a later scene, he still has the mark on his forehead from where the director <laughs> hit him, and I loved that so much. <laughs> deflected his shot back. Okay, deflected him. his golf ball, but it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love a bunch of little bits there, like 
when um the the representative is like he's on the phone at a driving range and they're like and like the the other production person like listen like hang on i know that i they they're driving range there's only one driving range within a certain distance of oh man um, I, I loved the, like, initial de-driving bits also, uh, <laughs> it was like, that, like, the show opens with, uh, and with everyone drives insane. Driving to, uh, deliver, uh, set, um, key animation, or, yeah, new animation. To the animation director? Yeah. I think she was at that point. Yes, and pick up the work she'd done. And it's straight out of the initial thing, I'm like, wait, hey, I... I know that drive. <laughs> it did. It did take me a while to figure out what was going on with her driving rival, who it turns out is a guy from another studio with the same job, and they're both trying to get that parking spot so they can be first in to talk to the animator. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and she kept beating him, and I loved it. And then it also took me a little while to realize it was a company car because then she was on the train later, and I was like, "Why doesn't she drive?" <laughs> so it's oh, it's company car. car. Yeah, okay, it's 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 got it. Got it. <laughs> oh. How do these people learn to drive? Complete with drifting moves that would not be out of place in a Fast and Furious film. I don't know. But I enjoyed it. <laughs> I mean, clearly, it's a required skill because when we're, when we're at, at the end of the series with the um, former production coordinator, um, who's now the office manager, when she does the uh, delivery later, uh, she, she she also like got the fingerless driving gloves on. And, oh my god! And it went like full Blues Brothers. She was being chased by a cavalcade of cop cars, and I was just <laughs> dying. I loved it so much. <laughs> <laughs> She and the she and the like lead policeman have a tete a tete to like yes, this has clearly happened before. Send <laughs> <laughs> it back in, just do it a favor. <laughs> so good. So good. Oh man. I also think the show does a great job of pointing out how skills you don't think will be important turn out to be key to your success. Like like driving well or you know, being earnest and honest when talking to people or, you know, like, just so, so many little things uh, because you are, of course, dealing with people all day long. Different people require different approaches. And that's like you have to give huge respect to production coordinators because they have to deal with people all day long. Like, <laughs> I also appreciated like getting into the difficulties of animated certain things like in the end of the first series that we cover uh that's covered here um exodus where there's this this final shot with a whole bunch of running horses and everyone's Mm -hmm. like oh god this is gonna be impossible to animate and my brain went i went there are so many horse running shots in attack on titan um <laughs> I just meant that, that there was like a whole generation of animators who have perfected their craft at animating horses thanks to Attack on Titan. Horses are hard. 100% yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also really appreciated in the first season the arc of the 3D animator, right? So when I was in college, my my best friend and my roommate went into the 3D animation track. 
And like very shortly after she started doing her dedicated animation classes, she told me, I'm going to specialize in rigging, which is an aspect of 3D animation where you essentially create the skeleton of whatever, whatever thing is going to be animated. And she said, I'm going to go into rigging because the teacher said that not a lot of people specialize in this and I will be like guaranteed to get a job. She was 100% correct. Like, as soon as she graduated? <laughs> as soon as she graduated, she had jobs. Um, she didn't just have jobs. She, and she did was, have she she had professional teaching. jobs. But they immediately brought her back to teach it. Because the, because the old, because there was, like, one teacher who did it regularly. And the, and the secondary wasn't doing it anymore. So I'm pretty sure I, I asked her at one point. I was like, she was explaining to me how it worked and what she did. And I was like, this sounds mind-numbingly tedious. You're just doing the same thing over and over again. And she was like, well, essentially, yeah. This reminds me so much of and she, the character's conflict where she is, is animating nothing but wheels for cars. Hmm. This is 100% how it works. Uh, <laughs> you get forced into doing one thing. And then because you were forced into doing that one thing for so long, you're like the best at that one thing. And then everyone calls you for just that one thing. And it becomes so hard to get back on track to what you would really like to do. Um, so I really identified with her struggle. I thought the scene where she was talking to her boss about it was really good. Because, like, the boss was sympathetic. But he he very rightfully was focused on the company's survival. And he was like, you know, this is... This is what we're known for now. This is what we're going to be doing for the foreseeable future. And because of that, I can pay living wages. You know, I can give benefits. You understand where both of them are coming from. It's just there are certain realities of the industry that suck. Um, so she ends up making the decision to leave that company with its excellent pay and benefits to find a job somewhere where she could do more story-related stuff. And... You know, she does struggle with that decision a little bit. But I know lots of people who are stuck in jobs because they literally can't afford to look for another job. Like, I am... I, <laughs> this was a fictional character, but I was, like, so grateful that she had the ability and the chance to do that. Because I know people that, that can't, essentially, that can't go after what they really want to do because... The funds just aren't there. How would they live in the meantime? Uh, so thinking about it now makes me sad because like, even though we get a happy ending where this character gets a job somewhere else, she actually does get pulled to do more story-based stuff, which is what she wanted to do. And it's awesome. Um, the reality of the industry is that not everybody can, can do that. But the show very rightfully does not like hammer in the message that you have to like follow your dream in defiance of all known reality. It actually is very realistic in how it approaches these situations. And that is something I appreciated. Uh, people who want to work in creative industries. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a little bit of my own bitterness talking. So please bear with me. Kind of get sold a bill of goods that you know, if this is what you love and this is what you're passionate about, this is what you should do. Reality is that it isn't suitable 
for everyone. And there are realities in the industry that will stop a lot of people in their tracks from continuing with doing that as the career. This doesn't mean that they're closed off from creative opportunities, but I do think it is something that they should be aware of going in. I think a lot of art schools don't give a proper picture of what it's really like to work in artistic industry. And so I'm grateful that shows like this exist because it's, it's a candid look, you know, and it's an entertaining show, but it's a candid look at the realities of the industry. Sorry for hijacking the whole conversation. That, that, that's okay. Um, that's yep. Um, so getting into some of the other things here. So, um, you normally watch this dub. What did you think of the, the dub? It was pretty good. I think the voices and the animation together gave the impression that these characters were younger than they really were in some cases. Yeah, a lot of the characters are drawn in traditional like anime style, which mostly is, you know, teenagers. Whereas all of the characters, all of the five primary characters, are in their 20s. They're professionals. They've, like, most of them have graduated uh, college or are one character still in college. Like, they, they're all young professionals, but this is a little bit of a, young looking. This is a little bit of a gripe I have with anime in general, is that you're either a teenager or... A really old person. Um, they do do a good job um, when they are like copying the faces of actual industry veterans to make characters. Like those characters actually do come off as like age appropriate, which is great. Um, but yeah, I think the main protagonists suffer a little bit from your protagonists must be teenagers, like cute teenagers uh, syndrome. <laughs> so this is my fourth time watching the show. Um, I, and sit, uh, watch it when it, when it came out, watched it with my parents during lockdown, watch it again when the dub came out. Um, cause there's a lot of information getting thrown out rapidly. And so certainly this is a case where if you have difficulty tracking subtitles and what's going on on screen, uh, it definitely benefits from watching it with the, dub, uh, with the dub under those circumstances. And one of the things I was impressed with the, impressed me with the dub is so, one thing some anime shows will do is they will translate songs in the show into English um, and have the voice actors sing them. Or if they're not going to translate them in English, they will switch back to the Japanese audio for them and maintain the um, and, and then go back to the English voice acting when they're not singing. Um, so what I appreciate is, is the happy medium they did here with the anime songs where they kept them in Japanese um, as far as um, they didn't translate them into English. And then when characters in the show are singing them, they'll often have the character singing them in Japanese. There's a great bit where Aoi is coming back from um, drinking with her friends and she's singing this, the theme song for Andy's Chucky and the English and the English dub, the English voice actress is singing it as drunk in Jap do, doing the a drunk voice in Japanese. I think that was such a good decision because as anime fans, 
Uh, we will do that. <laughs> we'll, we'll try and sing in Japanese. Probably not in public because I'm sure we're doing a terrible job. But yeah, in the car on the way home, totally. I was vibing with her in that moment. <laughs> My man, I was like, I would never admit, like, uh, David, you, you still know the entire opening song in Japanese for Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> 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 you, you, you absolutely do that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and the precipice is, is, is also like is she's singing it in Japanese, but she's also like like very clearly like singing it reasonably well in Japanese, which makes sense for a show that that is a formative work for her and got her into this business, um, and remembers very fondly, and so of course she'd know every syllable by heart, yeah, even when absolutely sloshed. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think a lot of us have <laughs> a song like that if we grew up with anime. <laughs> um, can we talk about my favorite scene in the whole show, which is when a bunch of people from different areas of the business gather in a room and talk about casting for the voice actors Oh, yes, that seems so good. (laughs) (laughs) That was the most amazing scene and just low-key a scathing indictment of (laughs) of so many aspects of the business. (laughs) Mark, we want someone well known. Soundtrack. We want someone who can sing if we're doing character stuff. I'm in charge of live events and we need a busty lady. Yeah, I, I I really got the impression from that scene where it's like the directors and the writers have all been in that room, and this is and, and they have all been in the room with those people, and even if those aren't based on explicit like people from particular companies, it's the sense of like this is the thing I've run into over this has happened over absolutely. again. Absolutely, and, and this, this is my chance to vent, so I am going to vent. <laughs> I the the scene rang with so much truth. <laughs> Just the fact that everybody fixated on who they wanted and would not compromise, and the fact that they're for thirteen hours, <laughs> <laughs> they threw that out as an offhand reference, and I was like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> what? I've been in meetings that just will not end. It's like, okay, everyone's, like, even when everyone's agreeing, you still have to do every little thing. <laughs> and even when it's agreeing, it's not just, you know, it's like, okay, well, we all agree on this, but should we look at the other options? <laughs> Let's go over everything. Let's go over everything. It's like, oh, God. Yeah. And then, of course, even if everyone was agreeing at the beginning, by the end of this subject, there's going to be disagreement. So you had, you, had the director, you had the director of the show, you had the people in charge of the music, you had the people in charge of like live events mm-hmm. for the show, which is something I never would have thought of. Um, and then, who was who else marketing. was there? Was marketing? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like it basically, it's like it's like like a really great layout of this is what the production committee like Noffit is made up of and here are the problems like the fundamental issues with the production committee system now i understand why the production committee exists um because like you have stuff like um 
Like, for example, Angel's Egg, where the rights to that are so muddled up because it was made before the production committee system that um, that um, Yoshitaka Amano and Mamoru Oshii have been trying for years to try and get a Blu-ray release out for that movie. Uh, there was a Laserdisc release, but it's never really gotten a DVD or Blu-ray release. And there was and the the thing that they've run into and Amano and Oshi have clout, mm -hmm. especially Amano. Those are not run small into ones. is we don't all know who has the rights. <laughs> Could be anyone. <laughs> um, and then if you, they know who has the rights, it's finding where the DV where like masters are and that sort of thing. Um, like, um, Robert Woodhead was going through, uh, film storage to try and find the masters for, I want to say it was either, um, was one of the Animigo Kickstarters. I want to say either, um, um, uh, Madox 01 or, uh, Megazone 23, and they just happened to stumble across the... Uh, he, he just happened to stumble across the original film masters for Project Echo. Now, at the time, Discotech Media had licensed it, but no one could find the masters, so they were going to do a very carefully calibrated, um, their own proprietary AI upscale process um, that they were going to have to do, use for the Laserdisc version for that. And then Robert Woodhead calls on the phone saying, Hey, are uh, you looking for Project Echo? Because I found it. <laughs> Guess what was in the basement? The entertainment industry is full of stories like this. Uh, yeah, Dungeons and Dragons art is still being found from the original TSR days that just wound up somewhere. Um, and this is something to pay attention to, actually, is, is who holds the rights and where are the original materials going. Because I know there's been a lot of concern lately in the age of streaming. If streaming services take the show off the platform, how do you watch it? it does it just disappear forever? Like if there was never a DVD release? Um, <laughs> and this is a valid concern. <laughs> you bootleggers need to come in and save the day. <laughs> uh, there, there was a column on ANN about this a few um, weeks ago, actually, like, kind of getting into this with stuff like, um, in terms of the importance of physical media, um, and kind of how the Zaslav purges at Max has thrown this into sharp oh, yeah. relief. Oh my god! Um, yes. so angry. and combined with the fact that hey, there's like Devilman Crybaby still doesn't have a physical release yet. Uh, and for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. Under the garden wall, I think, is one. Oh god, yeah. Um. So like, yeah. <laughs> so like, um. There have been like people um, who are longtime veterans of the industry. There was a uh, article also on ANN um, recapping a video that's put out by one of the veterans of Gynax. Um, the, uh, the name, exact name fell in my head. He's the author of the Notenki memoirs talking about the issues of the production committee system and how, for example, an animation studio might not necessarily have full ownership or rights of a work that they necessarily created because other companies may have put more money into um, making the series and thus have more rights to it. This is also why, for example, 
the most recent Bubblegum Crisis Universe spinoff projects do not actually have the night sabers in them. Um, like Parasite Dolls is in the is in universe for Bubblegum Crisis and involves boomers, but uh, night sabers are not anywhere to be seen. This is because of how the right because on the other hand, like Bubblegum Crisis was a was sort of a pre um, production committee show. Like all of the companies that would be involved in the production committee were there, but they didn't have the same levels of contracts and stuff that are involved, and so. This is why, and so we don't have like limited series in this that have the night sabers and we have the concept of boomers and and Mega Tokyo, but and maybe and possibly even the eighty police, but not the but not like the night sabers elements, not the the music or that sort of thing, because may, because of how those rights hashed out. And, and if it's frustrating as a fan to think of all these shows that you want to watch but can't because they're in rights limbo. Think of how frustrating it was if you worked on one of those shows. Absolutely. Ins- insanely so. <laughs> what, what would you make the show about if you don't have the lightsabers and you can't have the music? Um, so like the big parts <laughs> It's a different conversation. I know. The short answer is you make it about the 80 police investigating crimes that happen to involve boomers in them. Okay, but why is it in a bubblegum crisis show you can just file off the serial numbers because the concept of boomers and the concept of an 80 police are not bubblegum crisis exclusive? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I know. I mean, to be fair, Probably like, just... like par- to be fair, Parasite Dolls doesn't ha- isn't Bubblegum Crisis, Parasite okay. Dolls or Parasite Dolls a Bubblegum Crisis story? It's just called Parasite Dolls. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Um. I also really liked, um, they showed the struggles of adapting a work after they showed the struggles of doing an original work, so we kind of got to see both of those. That was really cool. In this case, all of the drama with the original author could could, could have been prevented if their go-between wasn't an idiot and a jerk, um, <laughs> which is very frustrating, but also I feel realistic. Okay. That's why it's that's why it infuriates me is because I could see it, I could see it happening in real life. Um, I was like, if someone actually had to deal with this, then oh my god, I feel so bad for them. Oh, I mean, this apparently has actually happened in real life. I, yeah, oh. I believe it. Yeah, that's why it's so infuriating. Polar Bear Cafe. I don't know if you ever saw the Polar Bear Cafe anime. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what happened to the anime is the um, basically the liaison between the creator manga creator and the studio was green lighting stuff without running it past the author first. Um, and um, then the manga team was like, okay, well they, st- the liaison said it was fine. So we will just proceed then. And um, that led to a mess. This also explains why so many authors are leery of having their work adapted, because this kind of thing happens often. Uh, <laughs> well, it probably doesn't happen often, but I mean, even once would be enough to give you pause. <laughs> um, 
it it was interesting how they interfaced with the publishing company of the manga because it was a big popular popular title. Um, the <laughs> the person who worked for um, Aoi's Animation Studio went out drinking a lot, played with a lot of contacts um, to get their studio the gig in the first place. And then, of course, the, the publication house's main concern is we want to keep selling this manga, don't screw it up. Here's a question for you, Alex, because I don't know enough about the industry to answer this question for myself. Is it common for manga adaptations for the author to have this kind of directorial oversight? Um, it depends on, to a certain degree, on like the, the, the reputation of the author and how much established they are. Like, for example, as an outlier, um, Silent Mobius, Kia Azamiya, uh, was a storyboard artist on the anime. Like, he was like very much in the trenches in the making of it. Um, other works where like the author is less established, they may not be able to have as much clout necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of this may be, like, for example, if you're attached to a major publisher, like, or a major magazine, like, say, Weekly Shonen Jump, um, you may just not necessarily have the time because you're, you're doing a weekly manga series. Yeah. Also, if you're relatively young or inexperienced, you may not necessarily be able to, um, on your own, parse what the what the animation studio is asking of you in terms of the in terms of the things needed for the adaptation. Um, Again, um, so that's kind of where things can fall there. Um, but yeah, this is certainly a case where like, I could see where a bad manga adaptation, anime adaptation of a manga can kill an anime. Um, I don't know if you heard, I don't know if you saw any of the GIFs or anything that happened, came out for X-Arm. I don't think so. Uh, it was a very badly adapted animation of, uh, anime adaptation of a sort of cyberpunk action anime with a um, character who went through a gender swap and a couple other things. And the animation for that show was trying to do a mix of CG and um, 2D animation, and it was not great. Um, I want to say either um, Jeff Thu of Mother's Basement uh, or Gigguk or both did like a thorough roasting of the show. Um, but one of the things that happened out of this is because that manga anime was so horrifically panned, the manga got canceled. Um, so the publishing house does have a vested interest. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, so I could also, again, see this lead to a situation where you have conflict between the publishing company and um, the author and the animation studio where the publishing company said, thinks, oh, this will benefit in continuing sales of the anime series or of, of the manga. Um, so the anime should do this. The, the author has their own vision of what they think would look better with the animation and they would want it to do this. But if those two disagree, then perhaps, particularly again, if it's a younger author or one with less clout, um, then they would then the uh, then the publisher may elect to keep the author a little more separate. 
Now, if you're somebody like Naoki Urasawa, where you are a big name, then the publishing company probably isn't going to do that. Right. <laughs> it's interesting to contrast that with authors here in America <clears throat> who, generally speaking, there's two situations where they're writing their own fiction and they get approached by a company who wants to make a movie out of it just personally, or if they're publishing something serialized, their, their big company that they're publishing serialization for gets approached instead of them. So I, I'm not sure like whether it is more common for the actual author to be approached or if, if the company publishing the serialized work would be approached first. Yeah, it depends on who has the rights. I, yeah, I guess this is one of those things that it would just really, really depend some authors have in their contracts, I think, that they get to approve or veto adaptations of their work, and some don't. And again, it kind of depends on how famous they are. It also depends on how involved they want to be in the process. Like, I suspect yeah. Neil Gaiman wants to be more involved. Um, John Scalzi may be like, like uh, someone who, who follows John Scalzi on his blog and on his social media and that sort of thing. John Scalzi feels like a guy who's like, I have I, I have a background in film criticism. I've been a film critic before I was an op published author. Um, also, I don't necessarily want to be hands-on involved in making the film project, assuming it even gets that far. So um, did the check clear on the option? Uh, yeah, yes, it did. Okay. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, yes. Speaking of Neil Gaiman, he has been so hands-on with both Sandman and Good Omens, and I'm wondering if that's because of what happened with American Gods. That is certainly possible. Um, Given how far off the rails that went. So it's a big complex industry, and it's, it's, the, the pecking order is vast and unclear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and this is about getting stuff like, for example, like we're re like we're recording this episode if, um, a few weeks after uh, Bill Cunningham, the creator of Fables, um, after a after a financial dispute with Warner Brothers DC Comics, elected to put Fables into the public domain. Yeah, which, um, which is oh. very interesting in the case of Fables because it's based on public domain stories anyway. But his particular take on it is kind of seminal to fantasy comics of the last few decades. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Like uh, also in contrast with say Alan Moore and his take on League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where uh, again, those are also all mostly public domain characters or XPs of characters who are under copyright, but where he has been extremely protective of it to the point where um, I think he's like, I don't know if he threatened legal action against AO3 or something like that for, or like, but he's basically hostile to the idea of anyone doing fanfic, even if he never sees it. I would, that, that would not surprise me to hear that Alan Moore did. He, um, there's very little that you can report to me about him that would surprise me. <laughs> and there, there's a whole creative conversation to be had about, to what degree your work remains yours after you have it published or released or whatever. Uh, but, but that's a different conversation for a different time. Also the importance of putting a time limit on continual publication before rights revert. Yeah, suffice to say that every creator is going to have their own ideas about it. 
Some very strong. <laughs> yep. Huh. Getting, so, getting back to the reason we're here. <laughs> yes, get, get, getting back to yes, you're a white box. <laughs> yep. Um, because so of like, the production co- uh, copies they used to hand out that were in white boxes for the VHS. Yeah, and even for the the DVDs are still a um, white labeled, which like speaking of which of of the technical aspects of the side of things, one of the things that surprised me very much early on was with the like with the hand delivering of the copy. In some cases, like a physical like Betamax tape copy still um, to some of these stations. Um, yes. That becomes a point of drama when they have to get there to deliver it on time. I mean, yeah. And it's, I, I was thinking, you know, couldn't you just securely upload it to them? Like, they do go into the conflict between hand-drawn animation and CG animation, and they talk about how certain things are all digital now versus using cells. Uh, like, all the coloring we see is digital, uh, a lot of the effects are digital, although the conflict is whether some of them will be hand-drawn. But, um, yeah, if you are already using digital mediums, this hand delivery is is very interesting to me. And I was wondering if it was a consequence of security, like they don't want the show to be leaked before release. That's kind of my thought. It might be in the contract with the publisher that, you know, all things have to be hand-delivered because that was not an issue. In uh, the first half of the show, when they were doing their original work, and there was an upload issue, uh, the FTL server was down at some point, so they yeah, weren't able to. This is true. So I suspect it might be a security thing, and also like the old, the tiny prefectural uh, broadcasting broadcast stations may not have you know super up to date technology, or it might just be really hard to get an internet connection out there. Yeah, usually they're pretty pretty good at spelling things out, but that one they were just like, "This is what's happening." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's also still like the, the the a lot of the drawn cuts were like build like like very like handing off big giant stacks of paper. Yes, they um, were. And I was uh, like, sure, surely they would scan those in in case anything happens to the originals, right? That, that was right? my question. I was like, right? <laughs> in between frames by hand, I kind of thought that, like, the show came out in 2014? Uh, let me check. Um, so, yes. Uh, 2014 to 2015. All right. Because I know... Western animation by that point had started using computers to just digitally fill in the in between frames, which is why they can look a little janky. Yeah, com- computer tweening has come a long way, but it's still not. not, not, not it's not never going to be as good as hand drawing because there's so many decisions that go into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I like. Also, like there are still like using like subcontracting for specific firms for in betweening in like Korea and that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look, like, if you're looking at the Japanese credits and you see Doctor Movie, that's a Korean in betweening firm. Mm, makes sense. Um, yeah, I know. Like 
so I know a number of U.S. companies, uh, most especially Titmouse, do send over to Korea for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that all of um, Avatar The Last Airbender was animated in Korea, and uh, Steven Universe mm-hmm. um, had in-betweens and stuff from Korea as well. There's even an episode in that show where they, they go to Korea and they walk through the animation studio. <laughs> Uh, Dragon Prince, I think the same studio. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that was uh, after. Yeah, after. As after after. After. Yeah. <laughs> ah, so we pretty much covered almost everything. Um, anything else we want to talk about for the show? Uh, if there, if you if have there, any interest in animation, watch it. If there is a job that exists where it's just doing research on random things for the purpose of the artists, um. I feel like I'd be good at that job. Call me. (laughs) (laughs) As an artist, I know what you need to look for. I know what reference is good. (laughs) Actually, that's research. I do, actually. (laughs) Just just, Uh, just putting that out in the universe. Um, uh, Oh, actually, anything, any of the other characters want to call attention to? I was thinking about this. Like, uh, Taro is a, is a interesting F up. Tara was absolutely my hate sink for the first season, and then it shifted to horrible uh, publication company guy in the second season. God, Taro, it's like, how do you still have a job? Exactly. So, here's the funny thing about Taro. The director based him on himself, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because apparently that huge screw-up he had where he just completely failed to properly communicate and report that there was an issue was based on something that happened in Girls Wound Panzer, I think it was. Yeah. When I was when I was told that that the, the director based this character on himself, I was like, okay, that makes perfect sense because it the character comes off as like someone being too hard on themselves. Like, this is the worst collection of character traits. There's no way an actual person was this bad. Like <laughs> The, the production assistant who messed up on Girls from Fencer wasn't the director of Shirobako. But they felt that, you know, that was. Um, yeah, um, yeah you see, also, Handa-san um, was good. Uh, I appreciate him coming Tricks back. Fixing other people's messes, dealing with the consequences of oh. other people's incompetence. Like, they have a number of people throughout the show say, if you mess up, we're the ones who will suffer. And yeah, that's that's what happens in a big collaborative project like this, and it sucks. <laughs> oh man! So I was I was just like teeth gritted for some of these things. I was like, "Don't you do that? <laughs> it's too real." Um, I think yeah. I mentioned I really liked uh, Daisuke. I think his first name was um, was a production coordinator that they bring in in the second. Oh yeah. Season. And the, the, uh, the veteran. He, we were calling him uh, Baku No because he looks like Bakugo from My Hero Academia. <laughs> and he's a jerk. <laughs> and he's a jerk. <laughs> um, so who else did I like? Um, I I liked uh, I the um, new animator who's brought in the second half of the series, the one who is uh, nonverbal. The very yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was. She was very interesting, you know, that has a very hard time communicating. I had mixed feelings. Like, I 
don't mind that she was nonverbal because she was finding ways to communicate. She was, you know, bringing up her courage and going to meetings and stuff by the end. So I didn't have a problem with her. I kind of had a problem with like, it was like they wanted to insert like a cute girl character. Like <laughs> that's what the, that's what all your protagonists are. Why did you insert another one? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, me, I, had a problem. <laughs> I mean, and there's also um, uh, uh, Rinko, um, or as he nicknamed uh, Goth Lily Sama. Yeah. <laughs> no problem with her. <laughs> yeah, like, like yeah, she, she's great. Um, uh. Also, one of the characters who apparently is an industry veteran, but is still drawn like a teenager. So I mean, she's admittedly dre- deliberately dressing to look lo- younger. So yes, I can, I, I, so I can cut some slack for that. I'm glad they gave um, her some focus later with the the baseball scene, and <laughs> you know, she explains to them why she dresses like that. that yeah, cool. Um, and I, and I liked the little fan, like the fantasy thought they have of like. What if we did a gothic loli baseball right? anime? How would we do that? <laughs> um, like, like, I, like every time I've seen that scene, I'm like, you're right. Why don't we have a gothic? <laughs> I mean, we've got print. Yeah, I've nine. <laughs> also, really loved the animator who became a character designer for the second season's production and, you know, really struggled with it. Oh, uh, um, Yumi? Yeah, that was uh, that felt that felt really real to me. Um, <laughs> character yeah, I, design I is hard. Have, I, I definitely haven't seen you struggle like that. Nope, never. No, never, never. I always get it right the first time. <laughs> but um, it, and you know they're showing the character design sheets, and the the changes are minimal. You know, but uh, they they really make a difference, and that's kind of how it is sometimes. Like. Changing the shape of the eye or the thickness of the outline, like the, the tiniest little nitpicky things, um, end up being important. And uh, I was I was feeling her pain, man. <laughs> yeah, especially um, since she felt like she was under so much pressure because it was the first time she was in that position. Yeah. Um, the character arc for Honda-san was also very interesting. Um, so I've seen the movie um, as well. So I won't get too much into that since that's what we're talking about today. But like his character arc of him, of him having this like very significant, um, like like being literally in the position that Aoi will be in the is in the second half of the series to complete with to get the director to finish the storyboards, locking him, tricking him into. Being locked into a cell in a storage room. So much goading him with fried chicken, loved it. (laughs) Um, And then finally, then retiring, but then serving as a bit of like a a wise person mentor figure for Aoi as he comes pops in every now and then to deliver cakes. (laughs) After also having lost all his stress weight. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, Yeah, he he comes back also in the movie as well, serving a similar like um, uh, mentor role. As well. I'm glad he served the narrative kind of by making Aoi continue thinking about, you know, why don't I have a dream as opposed to everybody else? What do I want to do? Um, But I also really appreciate that portrayal of him because it shows that, yeah, you can, you can leave. It's not a failure. 
Like, it's totally legitimate to get out of the business and do something else if you're not enjoying it anymore. It's totally legitimate to get out of the business and do something else if something else makes you happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Um, <laughs> I think the show really needed that because um, the main protagonists are also obsessed with getting into the industry and, and making it a career and following their dreams of being in the industry. Um, that It's really nice to have that kind of, that little out as it were. Like, no, it's totally legitimate to, to go and be happy somewhere else. That's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, I like that. <laughs> Alex here. Uh, we had a minor technical difficulty. We lost about the last three minutes of the podcast. Basically main stuff covered there was I mentioned I had a IOI um, Android is the first Android I purchased. Um, and then just general wind down stuff. So we'll, I'll just do that solo here. Our next month's episode is going to be the vampire hunter D film. This is the original movie, uh, not bloodlust, which is the sequel and based on the third novel, third, fourth ish novel in the series. Now, that is currently, as of this recording, not available for streaming. So this will be a physical media thing that you'll need to pick up from either uh, Right Stuff or the Crunchyroll store following the transition there. We did not talk about that this episode. Uh, but so, or Amazon or whatever your retail establishment of choice is. So um, that will be something to look forward to next month. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider backing the Patreon at patreon.com slash count zero OR to cover hosting costs for our hosting providers. And also rate and review the podcast on your podcatcher of choice. It helps people find us. And finally, if you have any feedback, I keep forgetting to add this bit. If you have any thoughts on the Vampire Hunter D anime, the novels or anything in between please email at anime explorations pod that's with two e's back to back at gmail.com with your thoughts on the movie or if you have anything on any of these shows that we've covered over the past year that works too anyhow thank you all for listening and we'll catch you all next time